Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. And it really is such a, a blessing to get to be here in this space. Um, I was here a little over a year ago. Yeah. Um, this was the first church I think I was able to just visit and come and worship. And uh, New River Church has been uh, just such an incredible blessing to me. The people of New River Church, uh, the impact that this church has had. Uh, Pastor Doug mentioned it. I work for an organization called Amira. We're a, uh, an anti-trafficking organization, so a, uh, a trauma-informed aftercare service provider for survivors of, of human trafficking domestically. And uh, I stood up here a little over a year ago and told you that we were going to work for the next few months and this next season to, to try to start a safe home, a safe place where we can work in conjunction with law enforcement, both federal and local, to give women a way out, a, a, a means of escape from this, this horrible cycle of sex trafficking. And, um, and so here I stand a little over a year later, uh, one pandemic later, one 2020 later, and, uh, and just can say with so much joy uh, and thank you to New River Church that we have officially hired our full-time staff. We've got a fully renovated home, and we're in the process right now of welcoming women into that home. Um, and so pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I hope you feel a sense of your clapping for yourself because we couldn't be where we are today without the people of New River Church and, um, and the support that you've offered uh, to Amira. And so one of my favorite stories from just this first season of sort of renovating the home, building the infrastructure, is um, I was able to give uh, an investigator for the Hartford Police Department a tour of the home. And um, she's about five foot two, looks like she's maybe 14. She does undercover work. She poses uh, as a potential trafficking victim, and that's uh, one of the ways that they uh, fight against this reality in our area. And I was giving her a tour of the home, and she said before I welcomed her in, uh, she said, just so you know, in order for me to do my job, I have to turn off emotions. And so she said, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm probably not going to respond emotionally to anything that you show me or anything that you say, because uh, I'm not heartless. That's just in order for me to get through my day to day. And so um, I start giving her a tour of the home, telling her some stories from Amira Boston, and showing her where the women will uh, be able to eat and make meals and congregate with, uh, with volunteers and with each other in some of their um, recovery programs and one-on-one uh, -on -one counseling and the physical um, provision that we provide. And then I took her up a floor to the residential space and started showing her where the women will sleep and where they'll, um, the, the space that will be their own and where they'll begin their vocational training. And uh, then I took her into a second room and uh, she walked around a corner and she looked into a closet and she saw two robes hanging up for the two women that would occupy that room. And in that moment, she did not keep her promise to not respond emotionally. And, um, and she just said, you know, in, in law enforcement, we talk about the rule of seven, that you have to help a woman escape or rescue a woman seven times before she's finally free because of the addiction, because of the psychological coercion, because of the um, psychological manipulation. And she said, this has the potential to be the rule of one. Um, that a one yeah, and, and I'm just so glad that she said that because it's so quotable, but, um, but so true. Um, that this is the opportunity for women to come in and be loved, cared for, offered um, physical um, 
provision and then just the kindness of the people of Jesus so that they can have a new shot and a new life. And so pretty incredible. And that's happening uh, in the greater Hartford area and as a result of New River Church and so many other churches in this area. So thank you for being a part of that story. And I'm so thrilled to get to be here with you today. Um, But I didn't just come to tell you about Amir. I came to preach the word of God this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to uh, sort of continue the thought that we started last week, but we're going to jump from Amos to Acts uh, into the New Testament this morning. So Acts chapter 1, um, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I believe the words will be up on the screen. If not, I'll read them out loud um, so there's no escaping it. Uh, it says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into this passage together. Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for an opportunity Uh, to dive into your word. Thank you for the power that's just inherent within it. Um, Thank you that this can be so much bigger um, than a person on a stage. Thank you that this can be so much bigger than just a a group of people gathered in a room. And and yet, Lord, you delight uh, to work through people on a stage. You delight to work through people gathered in a room. And so, Lord, I just pray for every person, wherever we came from, whatever our Saturday looked like, whatever our week before that looked like, whatever our lives have led us to to this point, in this moment in time, I pray that you would meet with each heart in this room, in each heart that's gathered in a living room or in a bedroom in front of a computer to just hear the words that you have to say, uh, to worship you in the quietness of our heart and then in the, the force of our lives as we step out of this space and this time. And so, Lord, we know that we take refuge in the shadow of your wings that we feast on the abundance of your table, that we drink from the river of your delight, for you are the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. And so, Lord, I just pray for light this morning. I pray for light for the mind, that you would illuminate our thinking to to perceive you as you are, and then you would give us heat for the heart, God, that you would warm our affections for you, uh, warm our affections for each other. Uh, And through that light and heat, God, I pray that you would send us out into the world of changed people. We love you, Lord. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, I want to start this morning's service with a confession, and it's this. I've never seen the movie Princess Bride. 
I've never seen the movie Princess Bride. And, uh, and I know that that sounds to some of you like I started this morning with heresy, um, but I've never seen it. I don't know why. It just hasn't been a part of my story. And, and when people have asked me, have you seen it? We should watch it. Will you watch it with me? I've just said no repeatedly because I enjoy the reaction uh, that that gets. Um, but I can quote the movie extensively because it's one of the most quotable movies out there. It's got a cult following. Some people claim it's the best movie ever made, or at least one of the best movies ever made. And so I know that someone named Wesley is coming for somebody else, but I don't know who Wesley is or who he's coming for. Um, I know that somebody uh, has killed somebody else's father and that someone else should be prepared to die. Uh, I've been with groups of people where they've said marriage and they've all laughed, and I've had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, and some of you are like me, you've never seen the movie Princess Bride and you don't care. Others of you, that's your favorite movie and you can't understand how is it that you cannot understand those things. And the point that I want to make this morning is the reason why I don't understand those sentences uh, is because I don't know the story. And we need story to construct meaning. We need story to construct meaning. So there was a philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre and he said, imagine that you're standing outside of a bus stop or a gas station and somebody walks up to you, and they lean in close, and they say, the name for the common wild duck is Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus. And they just walk away. He says, what do you do next? How do you respond? And he said, well, it depends, right? It depends on the context. Uh, one possible scenario is it's a case of mistaken identity, that the man is a professor, uh, and he walks up to you, he thinks you're one of his students, and he mistakes your identity, and he says, oh, George, you had asked me earlier, I just remembered the name for the common wild duck, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus. And uh, or another possible scenario is um, that the dude's just crazy, right? He just doesn't know the difference between himself and a coffee mug. He's just out saying things that don't make any sense, uh, and that's a little bit sad. Or the third possible scenario is that he's a spy, and he is speaking to you the pre-approved code to, to enact the mission uh, that will send you out into the world, right? And each of those contexts will determine a very different response from you because we need story to construct meaning. Um, we need context if we're going to respond appropriately, right? Uh, if we don't understand the context, we cannot respond appropriately, and the results of that can be disastrous. So I remember um, my first college girlfriend, 18 years old, I uh, didn't really know what it looked like to be a college boyfriend uh, and had sort of run out of options and ideas. And so I went to somebody that was far older and wiser than myself, and that was my sister, who was a senior in college, and asked her, what should I do? And she said, well, I just started dating a guy. You just started dating a girl. Why don't you just bring her over? We'll do a double date. I'll cook dinner, take all the pressure off. You don't have to come up with any ideas. I said, deal. That sounds great. So we went to her house. She made dinner. We ate dinner. Uh, we're sitting on the couch after dinner with the TV on, sort of in the background, and then just kind of talking and that sort of thing. And we get to the point in the night where we've all sort of run out of our A-game conversation, you know? Uh, and uh, all the things that make us look smart or funny or impressive or whatever, like, we've already told those stories, and I can feel the awkward silence impending. And I'm the kind of person that will do anything to resurrect the awkward silence. And so I'm looking for a way out. I see a commercial come on TV, and I say, everybody shut up, this is my favorite commercial. And so everybody stops talking, looks at the TV, and uh, as soon as they do, the man on the TV says, if you have a, and it was a Viagra commercial. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'm just like, no, like mortified, right? Um, that's not, that's not, like, this is my sister. 
and my brand new girlfriend. And now this is Mike's favorite commercial. Right. So what went wrong? What went wrong in that scenario? I misunderstood the context, right? And I misappropriated my response. If we don't understand the context that we're living in, we can never respond appropriately. And I bring that up for this reason, that we're living in a crazy context right now. The world is sort of going nuts. There's unbelievable division. There's increases in anxiety. There's increases in depression. There's rivalry. We've got family fallout. And we're looking around, and and Christians are asking, what does it look like to respond appropriately? What does faithfulness in this season look like? How do I be a faithful follower of Jesus when the world around me is going crazy? And here's the reality. You You can never respond appropriately to that question if you don't understand the context that you're living in, because we need story to construct meaning. So what's the story as Christians that we're living? What's the story that we're living in? Uh, To answer that question, I want to go to the passage that we read, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, because it's the final conversation of the risen Christ with his followers. And so Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. He has changed the world with his teaching. He's warmed and changed the hearts of his followers. He has died, been buried, beat death, resurrected, and he stands before his disciples. And and as their friend, as their Lord, as their Savior, he has one final conversation. He gets one one last shot, one last set of sentences to speak to his, his people. What does he say? What's the story that he tells them that they're living in? And I imagine that you're mildly interested in what I have to say this morning, maybe, but you don't really know me that well, and you don't know if what I have to say is bearing any authority. But if you had just learned that I had, I had died, I had been buried, declared dead, and then burst forth from the grave by the power and authority of the Holy Spirit to stand before you and have one final conversation before I ascended into heaven, you might pay attention a little closer, right? You might lean in a little bit more. And that's this conversation. That's the conversation that the disciples are having with Jesus. He has just died and not stayed dead. And he's standing before them uh, and he gets to speak to them one final sentence. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is coming and he's going to give you power. And then you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. These are the these are the final words of the risen Christ. And there's, a, there's an interesting thing that sort of happens next. They sort of ask him some questions. He says, don't worry about that. And then, um, and then it says he was lifted up from heaven out of their sight. And uh, it's, this, it's the passage that we commonly refer to as the ascension. It's, if you grew up in a more sort of liturgical tradition, this is the passage that you would read on Ascension Sunday because Jesus literally ascends into heaven. And we don't know how long the disciples stood there gazing into heaven, our passage says, in awe and in wonder of what just happened because they just, they just realized that this man that we walked next to, that we, we slept near on the hillside, that we had our lives strangely warmed and our hearts changed by his teaching, this man who we mourned when he was crucified, were bewildered by his appearance after the resurrection. They, they now realize finally and completely as he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, now they realize finally and completely that our friend is God, that he is the prime agent over all of creation, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and they are just in awe, gazing into heaven in stupefied wonder and worship. 
And we don't know how long they stood there gazing into heaven, but we know it was long enough for God to send two angels. Did you notice that in the passage that we read? And they say, hey, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This Jesus who you saw go is going to return. So seriously, go to Jerusalem because there you're going to receive power and then you will be his witnesses. And there's a, a point that I want us to pull from that, and it's this, that as disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. As disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven, but we were meant to move with God as he moves on this planet because our God is on the move. And here's the reality. Here's the sad reality this morning, that that all over the world, the the church is in decline. Um, And that's just the truth. If you look at churches, congregations, uh, numbers of people who are showing up for attendance in church, it is in decline. And so something has started to, to be amiss in this. And we've got so many people that... They're not just not going to church for the first time. We've got vast numbers of people who are leaving the church, who grew up in the church, who were part of the church, who are saying it's no longer worth my time. And so we've got to start asking questions like, what's led us to this place? How did we get here? And I think Pastor Doug did such a beautiful job last week of talking us through that, that we've lost the centrality of seek me, seek the face of God, that so many of us, we've gone through the motions of doing the religious things coming to church, uh, singing the songs, going to the Bible studies, attending the conferences, but we've, we've neglected the centerpiece, and that is to seek the face of God. And for, for many of us, it's that we've, we've, we've come to do the religious observances, but we've neglected the person of Jesus. And for others of us, it's that we've gone to do the things of God, that we've, we wanted to reach the world, and we wanted to make a difference, and we wanted to bring justice and righteousness, but we've, we've attempted to bring the kingdom without the king. And so it was beautiful of Pastor Doug last week to draw us back to the centerpiece. And so what's the answer? The answer is seek me. So the question then becomes, what does it look like to seek God? What does it look like to seek God? How does that verb play out in your life? Well, I think um, to answer the question, what does it look like to seek God, we have to recognize the reality that the pursuit is dependent upon the thing pursued. The nature of the pursuit depends upon the nature of the thing pursued. So what does it look like to pursue God? What does it look like to seek God, right? And it depends. It depends on the nature of the thing that we're pursuing. So if you want to pursue an adventure novel, you go and you grab one off the shelf, you sit down and you read it. But if you want to pursue an adventure, then your pursuit is going to look different. If a man wants to pursue a woman because he's interested in her, that might look like um, more than just a private sort of inner devotion. And I think for so many of us, when we think about what does it look like to, to seek God, we, in our minds, we picture worship. We picture this private moment in our closet and in our home, and, and, and it's the seeking of God in this inner private space. And it, and it is. It's, it is that. But it's more than that, right? Because our God is active. Our God is on the move. And so So if a man wants to seek a woman, it's more than just thinking thoughts about her. It's more than just knowing ideas about her. It's more than just going to her Instagram or Facebook and learning things about her. We have a name for that, and it's called stalking, right? Uh, If you really want to pursue her, at some point, you've got to move towards her, to be with her, to do things with her. And my fear for so many Christians is that we've just had this sort of maybe private inner life of seeking God, but we've never really gotten to know him because we've never really moved with him. Does that make sense? 
our God is on the move. And so a simple way to illustrate that, I have an uncle um, who we call the fun man in my family. And um, he, is, he's, he was single until he was 40, sort of a wild man. He's got a long beard. He's owned homes in Crested Butte, Colorado, Baja, Mexico, a surf shack there. He now lives in uh, the coast of California in Santa Cruz. He's, he's won surf competitions all over the world. He's climbed mountains all over the globe. He's got the big beard. He's basically just a living North Face ad. And uh, that's my uncle. And so uh, right after I graduated from college, he invited me to come spend some time with him uh, out in Santa Cruz where he lives. And, uh, and, and I was 22. I had just started into ministry. And if you don't know, if you're 22 and you just started into ministry, the average salary is like $1 a year. They just don't pay you a lot of money. And, uh, and so I said, well, I would love to. I'd love to come spend some time with you out in California, but, but I just don't have the cash right now, maybe in a couple of years. And he said, look, you pay for the plane ticket, and I'll take care of everything else. He's like, I'm going to take care of you when you get here. Don't worry about it. I said, done. So I bought a plane ticket. Uh, I flew. I landed. I walked into his tiny little multimillion-dollar home out in California. Uh, but it was nice. It was on the coast, you know, sort of tucked into the hills. He had heated bathroom floors. And I was like, this is nice. And uh, on top of that, my uncle, who was single until he was 40 because he was sort of living this crazy single life, had just gotten married and had a daughter. And so I got to see my uncle be a dad for the first time. And so we were having this amazing sort of vacation. But because he's my uncle, it was more than just being in his house. Because why? Because my uncle is active. He's going to move. And so day one, he comes into the living room with a bike and he's like, hey, let's go mountain biking. I'm from Texas. I thought I was a mountain biker. Turns out we don't have mountain biking in Texas. We have trail riding. Uh, I got to go mountain biking for the first time that day. And we're going through the redwoods, and it was incredible. We're actually biking through redwood trees, and it was lush, and it was green, and it was a mountain biker's dream, right? But that wasn't the end of our vacation. The next day, he says, let's go surfing, which is kind of wild because it was December. We were two of the only people crazy enough to be out in the Pacific Ocean in December surfing. But I'll never forget that moment, the deep blue of the ocean, going under my board, the quaint little town of Santa Cruz tucked into the hills, the, the beating of the waves up against the cliff, and then just the rush of the adventure of surfing. I remember being out there under these sort of massive swells and, and thinking, oh, maybe, I'll, nope, 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 that one's too big. I'm just going to let that one go. Uh, and then my uncle taking it, right? And I, I'll never forget this moment where my uncle takes this big wave, he comes down off of it, and then you can just see his head like come over the top of the crest, and I'm looking at him from behind, and he looks at me, and then he just carves his board. He's like, I'm a beast, and then keeps going. And uh, I was like, you are. You are a beast. I, uh, I agree. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget that. And then the next day, uh, my uncle took me to church with him, which is interesting because my uncle doesn't believe in God. But he took me to church because he'd had a little girl, and she started asking spiritual questions, and so did he, and he wanted to explore spiritual things. So he took me to this church that the pastor was one of his surfer buddies, and it was a church experience maybe unlike any I'd ever experienced before, but they were authentic, and they were seeking Jesus, and they were uh, discovering to worship him. But I'll never forget the pastor coming out uh, with his long blonde hair and sort of surfer swag. And as the music died down, he just stopped, and he was sort of having a moment. And he said, let's everyone just take a moment and think about how gnarly God is. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked up to laugh with him because I thought he was joking, but nobody was laughing. They were all just like, totally, right? Like, that was such a normal thing for him to say. But we weren't done yet. We went from there, and we went uh, snowboarding. So we drove four hours to the Sierra Nevadas. We went snowboarding. We're jumping off of cliffs, and it was the coolest vacation of my life. And so when I got home, they're like, how was it? And I was like, it was insane. I don't even have the words. We're surfing one day. We're snowboarding the next. We're going off of jumps. My uncle's a beast. It was incredible, right? And, uh, and it was the coolest vacation I've ever been on. 
And I mention that story to you for this reason. Imagine if every time my uncle came into the living room with a board or a bike or a prospect of an adventure and he said, hey, come ride with me, come run with me, I said, no thanks, no thanks. I'm good to just hang here. The bathroom floors are heated. I don't know if you knew that, right? If every time he came in with it, with it, I'm going on an adventure, come ride with me. If every time I said, no, thank you, imagine how different my response would be when I got home. Yeah, it was all right. It was good. It was fun. I got to see my uncle be a dad. It was cool being in his house. Here's the thing. If you want to get to know God, you got to move with him because our God is on the move. He is active in this world. If you want to get to know my uncle, you've got to move with him because that's who he is. If you want to get to know God, you've got to move with him because our God is on the move. I don't know if you caught it in the passage that we read, but it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, what was the first book and who is Theophilus? Does anyone recognize the name Theophilus? It's only mentioned one place in the entire Bible other than Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Does anyone know Theophilus? Does anyone know who that is? Sort of an obscure name, sort of an obscure figure in our Bible, but the only other place Theophilus is mentioned in our Bible is Luke chapter 1, verse 4. And Luke starts off his gospel and he says, I'm writing to you an orderly account of the life and deeds of Jesus as best I can understand them, O excellent Theophilus. And so what was the first book? The gospel of Luke. And so the first book is the entire gospel of Luke. And he says, in the first book, the gospel of Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's an interesting word to use because what happened in the first book? What happened in the Gospel of Luke? Literally everything, right? The entire life and ministry of Jesus, his teachings, his healings, his, his incarnation, his death, his burial and resurrection. Luke says the beginning. That was the beginning of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That the Gospel of Luke, his earthly ministry, was just a, the match that lit the flame that will set the whole world ablaze that Jesus began to do something special and he's continuing to do something special. And so we exist within his continued work. That was just the beginning. And he says that he appeared to them after 40 days by many proofs and he was speaking of the kingdom of God. Now, what's the kingdom of God? It's interesting that he would mention that and it's consistent with his other writings because the entire theme of the book of Luke is this idea of the kingdom of God, that Jesus would come and he'd say, I'm, I'm proclaiming the kingdom, repent and believe in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The, the, the kingdom of God was the theme of the book of Luke. It was central to the ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke, so much so that the very first sermon that Luke records of Jesus happens in a synagogue. It's the first time we get to hear Jesus teach. He says Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. They asked him to read something, so Jesus walks to the front of the synagogue. He opens up the scroll. He flips over the book of Isaiah, in the first sermon of Jesus recorded in the book of Luke, he opens up the scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what just happened? What just happened in that moment? 
See, the Old Testament people of God, the book of Isaiah, they had this expectation. The year of the Lord's favor was this anticipated event where God himself would enter into the human story and he would begin to make all things right, that the poor would have good news priest to them, that the captives would be set free, that the oppressed would be liberated. When God shows up, all who are lonely are welcomed in. All who are cast out are brought near. All who are oppressed are set free. They had this idea that one day God himself, Yahweh, would come to visit his people. Jesus walks to the front of the synagogue like like if one of us walked to the front of this space and read this passage about the year of the Lord's favor and God coming, reading that and saying, I'm here. I'm here. And so what has Jesus just claimed? He claims to be God. He claimed to be God. And he said, the year of the Lord's favor, the recovering of sight to the blind, the setting free of the oppressed, that, that's happening now. I came to bring the kingdom of God. And then he sits down and then everybody freaks out, right? They go to stone him. Why? Because he's just committed blasphemy. He's claimed to be God. And yet he said, I came to bring this kingdom, to turn everything on its head, to bring good news, to bring favor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, both physically and spiritually. I came to set all things right. I came to restore all things that Jesus came to be a king over a kingdom, that he came to restore everything. And that's good news because we live in a world that has gone dark. We live in a world where division politically, has severed families. We live in a world where anxiety is on the rise. I don't know if any of you have watched The Social Dilemma, sort of alarmist, kind of wild, but massively informative. One of the, the heartbreak, most heartbreaking moments for me in that was as we lose connection and as we become more isolated, and um, that even, even isolation, I'll just pause there for a second. I, I read recently that the, um, uh, the Surgeon General said we're more isolated than we've ever been. We're more alone than we've ever been. And he said, here's the problem. That isolation, loneliness, has a more adverse effect on your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has, it has a greater effect on your life expectancy than smoking 15. And he says, and we're more alone than we've ever been. That's on the rise. In The Social Dilemma, they talked about the rise of anxiety and depression in our nation. And they said, and particularly among teenage girls. And this was the thing that broke my heart. They said, among teenage girls girls who cut themselves or feel clinically depressed or anxious, that number has risen by 62% since 2011. It had remained about steady as long as they've tracked it until about 2011. And then with the advent of social media and uh, less connectedness in humanity, that number has risen to 62% among teenage girls. Preteen girls, that number has risen 189%. Um, suicide rates among that same group have risen 70% among teenage girls and 151% among preteen girls. Um, that there is something in this world that desperately is off. I see this day to day in the work that I do, working with this world of anti-trafficking, and I know that the US Department of Labor estimates that there are 40 million people in the world today who are enslaved, who are bought and sold against their will through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. I know that according to the US Department of Labor, it's a $150 billion a year annually industry. It's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, the second most profitable. In the United States, the Global Slavery Index estimates that, that just among women, just among adult women, there are 500,000 women being trafficked in the United States of America today. And that's not just in like 
some coastal town or out in Las Vegas. This is happening everywhere. There have been reported cases of child trafficking in every single county in the state of Connecticut. Every single county. So this one, yes. In every single county in the state of Connecticut. That this is a real problem, and it's happening all around us, that we live in a vastly broken world. And so it is good news. It's good news that Jesus came and he said, I came to set free those who are captive. I came to bring a recovering of sight to those who are blind, to those who can't even see their sin. I came to bring scales off of their eyes, and I came to, to restore all things. See, at Amira, we, we simply see ourselves as the people of God who will rise with God to participate in this sort of kingdom work. And this is who we're meant to be as believers because our God is on the move. Psalm 12:5 says, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place them in the safety for which they long. And so when the poor have been forgotten, the needy have been neglected, God says, I will make it my personal priority. I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place them in the safety that they long for. And he's saying, hey, come run with me. Come be a part of this rescuing work. Come being a part of this redeeming work. And, uh, and he's calling us to be a part of what he's doing on this planet. And so he came to them speaking about the kingdom of God. And he looks at them and he says, I want you to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to be a witness? Well, a witness is somebody who tells a story, right? Whose own story points to a bigger story. A witness is somebody whose life tells a story. And he says, I want your story to begin to count for my story. I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to tell the story of redemption. I want your life to tell the story of the gospel, of God coming to human history to restore and redeem all things, to save people, to make them whole, to give them new life. I want you to be a witness to that story, to the gospel of Jesus. In where? In Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, often when we think about like mission or moving with God or doing um, moving with God where he's moving on the planet, we often think about the ends of the earth, right? Papua New Guinea or some village in the backside of nowhere that we think that mission is the ends of the earth. But where does Jesus say we're going to be his witnesses? He says in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Where was Jerusalem to the original audience, to the original hearers? It was the ground underneath their feet, right? He says, I want you to be my witnesses first where you are. And then in Judea, which was the surrounding region. And then in Samaria, which was their religious and political rivals. I want you to be my witnesses there. And then to the ends of the earth. And so for us, that would be, I want you to be my witnesses in Manchester. I want you to be my witnesses in New England. And then I want you to pay particular attention to those people who are your religious and political rivals. I want you to be my witnesses to them. That's Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth. That God is calling us to be a part of his story right where we are that he's calling us to make a difference right where we are, that we're meant to be his witnesses. And, um, and so God is calling us to risk the cold danger of the mountain of mission. And so for us at Amira, when we move towards women to help be a part of their story, their rescuing and redeeming story, when we move into the mess of that, it's never easy. It's never easy. It's enormously complicated. Um, it's hard, but it's worth it. And it's beautiful, right? It's never easy to climb a mountain, but it's worth it, and it's beautiful. 
God is calling us to risk the cold danger of the mountain of mission, to, to follow our guide up the mountain, to walk in his steps and feel strength return to our legs in the climb. Don't you want that in your Christian life? That as we breathe in the cool mountain air that our heads will clear and we'll realize that God has called us to move with him. See, God's call to us is not to leave us purposeless and alone. It's to come run with him as he engages this world in his rescuing and redeeming work. See, my fear is that so many of us have gone to church and we've sung the songs and we've read the studies and we've gone to the conferences and we just feel not that close to God. We feel like I really don't get this. And my fear is that you've never really gotten to know him because you've never really moved with him. You've never really engaged with him. And I want to rescue you from that this morning, that, that gazing into heaven is the right first step. It's the only first step. And we should never move on from being in awe and wonder of who Jesus is because he says, seek me. And we're meant to do that through his word, through communal worship. We're meant to do that through studying the Bible. But we were never, as disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. We were meant to move with God as he moves on this planet. And I want us to see that seeking God means gazing and going. That's what it means to seek him, to gaze into heaven, to be awestruck at who he is, and then to move with him as he moves on this planet because he's calling us to be witnesses. And a witness is somebody whose story tells a bigger story. Uh, and so to close, uh, I'm getting married next month. Uh, so that's, that's exciting. <laughs> um, I'm pretty excited about that. And, uh, and I'm in a season of life where uh, I've just moved through a season where like, all of my friends are getting married. So prior to the pandemic and through the pandemic, I was in seven different weddings, not just attended, but like groomsmen in wedding because all of my friends are dropping like flies. It's just happening all around me. And, uh, and I'm sort of left asking the question as I watch this happen all around me, um, how did these guys pull this off? Because like I knew them in high school, some of them, you know, and knew them in college. And I'm like, how did that guy convince a beautiful, capable, intelligent woman to spend the rest of her life with him? Like, how did he do that? How did he pull that off? And it is a miracle. And, uh, and as I started thinking about it, like particularly my youngest brother, John, I, I just uh, had the honor of officiating his wedding in Brooklyn. And, uh, and it wasn't that long ago. Like, I remember it well. It wasn't that long ago that my mom walked into the backyard and little John was sitting in the mud with Sam and they were chewing on rocks, like trying to eat rocks. And my mom was like, what are you doing? And, uh, and they said, so we can have hard muscles, right? <laughs> like that guy just convinced a beautiful, capable woman to say yes to his marriage proposal and to spend the rest of her life with him. How did they pull that off? I think really it's two things. They showed an initiation and a responsiveness that as they grew and matured in the world, that they showed character, that they showed that they were consistent, and then they showed an initiation towards their beloved, that they moved towards them, and not just in their best moments, but in their worst moments. And they showed a responsiveness to her, to her desires, to her needs, to her, um, her joys. Uh, they showed an initiation, and they showed a responsiveness. And then significantly, when the right moment came, they spoke the, the words of love. They got on a knee and they said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life without you by my side. I love you. I want to marry you. Will you marry me? And she said yes. And so they showed it and then they spoke it. So how do you convince somebody like Maureen, who was trafficked from the time that she was a, a preteen, forced into 
bondage, coerced, manipulated, psychologically abused, physically abused, and then when she turned 18, was arrested for prostitution. A victim turned into a criminal. How do you convince somebody like that that there's a God in heaven who loves her? I think two things. I think first you show her, and then you tell her. You show an initiation and a responsiveness. And so we met Maureen when she was in prison, and we heard her story, and then we kept coming back week after week, and we kept hearing more of how she was trafficked from a young age, and she was vulnerable, and she had no way out, and, um, and then when she was 18, she was arrested, and, um, and then she started to express to us this fear like so many have when they've had a little bit of distance from that, and they can finally see it for what it was, that, that when the prison doors swung open, that it wouldn't be to freedom, but that it would, the first face that she saw would be the face of her trafficker. It's not uncommon. We've experienced stories like this. The Department of Children and Families in Connecticut have experienced stories where women will have men's names tattooed to them so that they can remember, you belong to me. You're my property. It's nothing more. Nothing more. You belong to me. And so she started hearing again from her trafficker before her sentence um, expired. And her greatest fear was that when the prison door swung open, it wouldn't be to freedom. It would be to him. And because we had showed this initiation towards her and heard her story, we were then able to show her responsiveness so that when the prison door swung open, it wasn't her trafficker's face that she saw, it was ours. The bright, shining, hope-filled faces lit up by the love of Jesus of the staff of Amira to then get to welcome her into our home. And it wasn't long before, as we were just showing her love, care, kindness, providing for her physical needs, treating her trauma, that, that she said, you know what, I think I want to, see my daughter, my little girl. And so our staff arranged at a church like this one to, to have a meeting with her and her little girl who had been born along the way. And our, our CEO, Stephanie Clark, tells a story of them sort of across the hall, unsure and a little bit afraid, but then the girl just running into the arms of her mother, both of them tears streaming down their face. And then she dedicated her recovery to her little girl. And the interesting thing is, for this woman, for Maureen, it wasn't long before these sort of horizontal reconciliations turned vertical, that the love of others for her pointed to the love of another. And uh, just before I joined staff at Amira, she stood on a beach in the North Shore of Boston with her new church and Amira staff by her side and was baptized. Uh, see, Amira's name means princess. It means daughter of the king. And the idea is that every woman that comes to us would go from seeing herself as victim or enslaved or property to beloved daughter of King Jesus forever. And that's the beauty of it. When I was a volunteer, I got to see that every so often after dinner, the women had this ritual, this prayer that they would pray. They would light a candle and they'd pray this prayer. Dear Lord, as we light this candle, may we remember the women who are still out there. May they find hope and courage in this light to one day join us at our table. And don't you see that that's the gospel? That's the gospel, that Jesus moves towards us in love to give us a new name, a new start, and a new life, to welcome us to his table and to send us out changed, restored, renewed. And then he says, and then you will be a light. You'll be a witness. Your story will tell a bigger story. And there is nothing better than that. Let's pray. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, Check us out at newriverchurch.org.